You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. In your experience of friends here, and you're thinking, okay, I love these people. I'm not trying to shame these people, and we're talking about the gospel. And honestly, I don't see that kind of like heart knit together, deep intimacy that you're talking about. I mean, I love those people, and it's it's cool, like we do it, but I don't experience that. And so there's two pieces to this we're going to come back to a lot as we talk about this whole idea of being adopted together as family. One is this equation, and I think it's a really good self-evaluation tool when you think about how you're interacting with other believers. Are you actually giving them the gospel? Are you speaking the real truth? Are you giving them real safety? Is that person actually safe to be real with you? Is there anything that person can tell you that would break relationship, that would cause you to back out? And are you willing to stick with it? That's a good self-evaluation tool. But the other thing we have to think about is relational capacity. That's a, that's a real thing. People have a relational capacity. I have a picture here of some death torture tools that you guys are probably aware of. You guys seen these before? Designed specifically for the purpose of killing perfectly good dads walking around their house in the middle of the night barefoot? I know. Satan is alive and active. I actually love Legos, by the way. My dad told me he was going to buy Millie tons of Legos to get back at me from when I was a kid. And I was like, you go right ahead. You go right ahead. I love them. Even when I step on them and I want to cry for three hours. They're great. Uh, um, I can't remember his name. Larry Osborne? Lawrence? Larry Osborne is a pastor. Uh, he, he, he's written several books about community and connection. And he, has this, he, he does this really good bit about uh, relational capacity where he talks about Legos. And if you think about a Lego brick, right? The standard little brick. They've got all these little dots on the top, the pips, the Lego pips, right? And every brick has a certain number of pips, and that's all it has. That's reality, right? And you can connect so many other Lego bricks to that brick. But there comes a point where if you want to connect a new brick to that one, you have to pull an old one off. Period. And there are different kinds of bricks. There's a standard Lego brick that has eight pips. Is that right? Have there any Lego people in the room? There's a standard one that has eight. Six? Standard Lego brick has six pips. I don't think that's true. I think it's eight. <laughs> People are furiously Googling right now. <laughs> a Lego brick has a certain number of pips. And some people are like, maybe you're me and you're a little more introverted and you're like the four pip brick, right? Or maybe you're my wife and you're the base plate <laughs> that's this big. And that's just the thing. Some people have more pips than other people. And we have to have the grace and the awareness that that is real. When God calls you and adopted you into his family, and he called you to this kind of intimacy and this kind of connection, I'm be real with you guys. We don't know what heaven's going to be like, but on this planet, you are not going to experience this kind of deep gospel intimacy with every Christian on earth. You're not. There's too many. And that's a good thing, by the way. 
You're not going to experience that kind of deep gospel intimacy with everyone in your church. Beloved, a lot of you aren't going to experience that kind of deep gospel intimacy with everyone in your GC. And that's okay. And there's something really important here. It's not okay to say, well, I'm an introvert, so I can't have friends. And then just give yourself a cop-out from engaging in gospel plus safety plus time and fighting for that because it's hard. That's not okay. But it is okay to be honest when your pips are full. It's okay. And that's something we have to work with. That's something we have to engage. And let's be real, that's a painful thing. That's a painful thing. When you build a friendship or you start hanging out with another believer and you just kind of get that like Holy Spirit itch of like, man, this person is really in love with Jesus. And I just sense like a kindred connection to their soul and like our call. And you start fleshing it out and you realize like that person's kind and they even love you and probably love hanging out with you. But the reality is they're just not at a place where they can go as deep with you as you can go with them. That's painful. We have to have the grace, the patience, to engage people as they are. Because here's the thing. That person might be in sin. They might be filling up half their pips with something that doesn't matter. Or they might just be relationally maxed. And they might be totally glorifying and honoring God with their relationships. And you don't know. That makes sense? We're going to come back to that a lot. And now we're in Luke. Luke chapter 7. How's that for an introduction? Some of you are like, uh, I have lunch reservations. <laughs> if you have reservations for lunch, you are probably too fancy to be here. <laughs> We're in Luke chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 36. This is one of my favorite texts in Scripture. This might actually be familiar to some of you guys because we preached this last year, the same text when we went through our fall series and talked about a life radically oriented around Christ. Same text, and I'm excited for us to engage this again in a fresh. Starting at verse 36, we read this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we need you this morning. God, we need you, if we're honest, God, to cut us with this text. We need your truth, your revelation to pierce us and divide our bone and our marrow. We need you to prick us where our hearts are hard and our necks are stiff. Holy Spirit, illuminate this text to us. Do not allow us to escape your truth in this text today. Do not allow us to cop out of what you are saying and what you're doing. God, we need you. Speak to us in power today. Amen. So, this story might be familiar for some of you guys. Again, we preached it like this time last year. But I, I want to start afresh in painting this picture for us. Luke is unique in his voice amongst the gospel tellers in that he speaks from a much more historical style and perspective than the other three gospel writers, as well as he emphasizes uh, the marginalized. More than any other gospel, Luke's gospel points out stories where people whose society pushes to the edges, Jesus elevates and lifts up in love. And so, from that perspective, we get this story. Now, what's going on here is that Jesus has been invited to a dinner party at a Pharisee named Simon's house. Now, this is a weird thing for us because we don't necessarily vibe with a lot of this first century culture, but this is an established thing. These, these dinner parties. What would happen is a wealthy person would have this kind of public outdoor dining room that was more kind of the size of a courtyard. And they would host these dinner parties and these dinner parties would become social events. The people who were invited to the meal would come and recline at table and engage in the meal and they would talk about politics and theology and society. It would be a way for news to kind of trickle in to some of these smaller communities. And as they were eating their meal, literally it was an open invitation for the community to come and watch them eat their meal. They would gather around in this big courtyard and they would watch these wealthy and well-known people eat dinner. And it served two purposes. It, it kind of established and moved news and information around the community, but it also was a form of benevolence for the impoverished. Because poor people could come and sit and eat the scraps after each course. So this is what Jesus is engaging in. He's been invited to this dinner party at a wealthy Pharisee's house. And he comes and reclines at table. Let me get this picture of, uh, of these kind of tables. This is an interesting thing. See, in this day, they didn't eat at kind of a big dining room table the way we think of it. Their tables will be a little shorter than your coffee table, but the size of your dining room table. And what would happen is these men would lay down on their left elbow 
with their legs splayed out behind them, and they would reach up with their right hand and eat the food. And so you ended up with this weird kind of like star of like grown men laying down on the ground eating with their legs splayed out behind them. And then this massive group of people surrounding them with servants coming in, moving dishes in and out. And this Pharisee has hosted this party because for whatever reason, he has social clout in this community. And so he's invited this well-known traveling rabbi to come and share a meal that they might engage in dialogue, right? Well, then we meet this woman. She enters in, comes into the party, as was normal, by the way. And she comes and she stands at Jesus' feet while they're engaging in their dinner. Now, Luke is kind in the way he describes this. He calls her a woman of the city and a sinner. But as uh, Liz Higgs uh, points out, she's a a theologian, Bible teacher, um, it's because no job description is needed for the world's oldest profession. This this text is uh, letting us know pretty plainly that this woman is a prostitute. And so she makes her way into the dinner carrying with her her ointment, her perfume, that was kind of the calling card for prostitution in this day, in this culture. And she stands at Jesus' feet and begins to weep. Now, I want you to get this picture in your head. I want you to be here and experience this story. I want you to be one of these audience people watching this happen. Because this is not like, dang, that song was good, like I'm a little teary-eyed. This is sobbing. And we know that because she's weeping so profoundly that Jesus' feet begin to get wet from her tears. I want you to think about that kind of heaving sob that would get someone's feet noticeably wet. And then she bends down and she begins to dry his feet with her hair. And then she begins to kiss him. And then she takes her ointment, her perfume, and she begins to anoint him and rub his feet. I know you guys aren't first century Jews, but I think you have enough understanding right now to know this is incredibly inappropriate, right? This is not normal social etiquette. This would actually be scandalously erotic in this context. This would be, I don't want to be like too crass here, but like this would be like on the equivalent of you sitting and having a dinner party with one of your pastors and like someone walks in and gives them a lap dance while you're talking. This is incredibly scandalous. And Jesus doesn't react. Can you imagine this? Right? This woman audibly sobbing wiping his feet, kissing him, anointing him. And Jesus is just sitting there like, yeah, so, so tell me again your thoughts on Leviticus 13. That's super interesting, man. What? <laughs> and then Simon, in his head, is like, this is insane. If this guy is some kind of prophet, he would know who this woman is. By the way, you would not have to be a prophet to know who this woman is. If he is as holy, as good a man as as he is known as, if his his reputation says about him, why on earth is he allowing this to happen? 
He would know. And then Jesus, just to get his little dig in on the prophetic piece, answers this man's inner monologue, <laughs> which is amazing. So I'm going to have something to tell you. By the way, that's not how you want Jesus to start a conversation with you. But anyway, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he gives him this little parable about two people with debt. Two people had debt, and one was big and one was little, and they both couldn't afford to pay it, so the guy just forgave their debt. Which one do you think would love the guy more? And Simon, who's not an idiot, he's a Pharisee, he's a theologian, he's used to this kind of conversation. He engages it, and he says, well, I suppose the one for whom the greater debt was forgiven. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. Now that's a dig, by the way, just so you know. Jesus is gouging this guy right now, saying, listen, you've been doing some judging already tonight. This is the first one you got right. You judged rightly. The one who's forgiven the greater debt will love more. And then he says this phrase, do you see this woman. I don't know if there's a more loaded phrase in all of the New Testament. Of course he saw this woman. Everyone at this dinner saw this woman. She was making a scene. Of course he saw her. This is all anyone in that space is thinking about in this moment. But obviously... As the readers, we know that's not what Jesus is saying. Because Simon doesn't see this woman. He sees a sinner. He sees a piece of garbage. He sees someone who is messing up his plan to have a nice dinner that builds up his social clout and his authority. He sees a distraction. He doesn't see her. He sees all of these things about her that he finds distasteful. And of course, Jesus sees the woman. He sees her. He sees the image of God in her. He sees her best attempt at loving him. Her understanding of intimacy is so distorted by her sin and by the cursed world, that she expresses her love to Jesus in the only broken and distorted way she knows how, which is insanely inappropriate. I want you to, I want you to think about this phrase. This woman is so caught up in the effects of her sin and the curse that this is the best she has to bring to Christ. And Christ sees her and receives that love. Wow. That needs to get you. And here's the best part, by the way. Jesus doesn't just see her. Jesus sees Simon. See, this is what I love about this story. Jesus sees through her best attempt to love him. And she sees him. He sees her. And he accepts that love. But Jesus also sees through Simon's posturing, sees through Simon's hard-heartedness and his stiff-neckedness and his empty religion, and Jesus sees Simon. Look how he 
phrases this to her, to, to, to Simon. He says, listen, when I got here, you didn't do me the common decency of giving me some water to wash my feet. You didn't greet me as an equal with a kiss. You didn't honor me as a rabbi by anointing me with oil. You just brought me in to sit at your table and be a part of your performance so that you could gain more social clout. She did all these things that were super inappropriate. But that was the best love she knew how to give me. And then he says, essentially, Simon, she just loves me more than you do. She just loves me more than you do. And look at this parable Jesus gives Simon. I love it because Jesus in his grace gives a parable that's not even true because it's what can invite Simon in. He gives a parable where he says, there's two people and they have two different amounts of debt and they're both forgiven. Who will love more? And he says, well, I suppose the one with the greater amount of debt. But we know as the reader, there's no such thing as unequal amounts of debt. It is not as if this prostitute's sin is somehow weightier than Simon the Pharisee's sin. He just thinks it's that way. And so in the same way that Jesus sees her and invites her in and allows her to engage him the best way she knows how, he sees Simon and he invites him in. He invites him into intimacy. But beloved, only one person left brunch with their sins forgiven. We should see that. We should reflect on that. Only one person actually received that love and that invitation. And it wasn't the church person. You need to hear that. Christ met two people in their sin, in their death, and he offered them himself. He offered them life. He saw them as they truly were. And one person received that gift, and it wasn't the church person. That should cut you to the quick. That should give you pause. You see, Jesus sees the image of God in these people. He sees the value inherent in these people. He sees God's signature stamped on them. Francis Schaeffer uses this analogy when he talks about sin, where he talks about sinful humanity as glorious ruins, right? And the image there is that if you were to go and visit something like the Parthenon, it's actually useless. Have you ever been to a ruin? It's called a ruin because it's ruined. (laughs) It's useless. And yet... When you see it and you see the design and the intricacy and how, how, how precious it is, it immediately becomes valuable in your heart. And you're like, well, this should be preserved, right? Of course. We see the value inherent in it, even though it can in no way accomplish its intended purpose. In the same way, the image of God shines through the destruction of the curse. Our sin, our choices, kill us. 
Our sin separates us from God, and we are hopeless and lost without him. But Christ has eyes to see. He sees God's image stamped in us. He sees the masterpiece behind the room. I couldn't find any matches in your photos library. Here are some images from the web. That's awesome. There's a painting I want to put up here really quick. This is Rembrandt's The Apostle Peter. It's pretty, right? He's got a sword. I think that's the one he cut the guy's ears off with. If you went to go visit the Louvre, where this is housed right now, and you were walking in, as you were walking in, you noticed that this was sticking out of the trash can. And you were like, oh, shoot. And you went over and grabbed it thinking, matter. you're probably thinking like it's a poster someone bought. And you pull it out, and it's cracked and broken and ripped and covered in garbage juice, but you realize it's the actual painting. Your first reaction wouldn't be, ew, gross, garbage juice, and throw it back. <laughs> Your first reaction would be, how did this get here? This is insane. Am I going to get arrested for touching this? And you would run inside and say, I found this in the garbage. I know it's not supposed to be there. And they would give it to a laboratory and people would spend thousands of hours meticulously cleaning it and restoring it so they could put it back on display because it's one of a kind. And when it's gone, it's gone. Right? Beloved, that's paint on canvas. That's nothing. You are made in God's image precious to him, designed by him for intimacy with him to his glory. You are so much more than skin and bones. You are the image of God stamped in you. And yes, sin has broken it. And your choices have distorted it and ruined it. But man, praise be to God that Jesus saw through that in you called you to life. Praise be to God that Jesus saw through your posturing and your sin and your arrogance and your destruction and he saw the best that you had which was worthless and he called you to life anyway. Praise be to God. This is the mercy we have received. Beloved, how can we do less? How can we do less? How can we judge people off of their muck and their mire when Christ looked through ours and saw us? So here's what I want to do with this, and here's how we're going to end out. We're talking about this equation, gospel plus safety plus time community. We proclaim the gospel a lot. That's the gospel. God saw through and he saw you and he called you to life. How can you do less? Safety comes in the how can you do less, right? Think of the grace you've been given. How can you not give the same grace? Think of the patience extended to you. How can you not extend the same patience? Think of the, the, the absolute love that Christ gave to you. How can you not give the same love? That's where the safety piece comes in. And as we thought and prayed about this, we thought, man, what are, what are ways, the best ways to use our time? What are the best contexts to do this? To proclaim the truth of Christ 
the sufficiency of his person in an atmosphere of complete safety? What are the different ways that we can spend our time doing that? And I want to focus on a different one each week. And today I want to give you just one quick little thought. And that's this. Your table around a meal is a really intimate and wonderful place to experience gospel and safety. It just is. Hospitality. Even the broken, distorted hospitality of Simon was a wonderful place for this young lady to meet the truth and safety of the gospel from Jesus. Isn't that amazing? I've got a couple of pictures here of some tables. That was my first dining room table. It was given to us by an older family at a church we were working at. And you can't see it in this picture, but there are two names and a couple hearts carved into it um, that some students did at our house when we used to use it. It's now uh, at Brandon and Lisa Hughes' house. It's their dining room table. Here's the next one. This table was given to me by a guy that I was working at a Chinese restaurant with. It was our second dining room table. <laughs> and you can see there's kind of that spot there in kind of the bottom, the corner that's pointing to you. That's a spot where some girls were at our house. Kim was discipling some girls, and they just had a night where they hung out, and a young lady just spilled a bottle of nail polish remover directly <laughs> onto our table. And you also can't see it, but that same corner is gnawed on because our dog Buford, our St. Bernard, when he was a puppy, loved to chew on wood. And so that whole set is just chewed on. Where's the next one? This was the first table we had at our new house, and it's currently at Donna Barb's Dental Lab. It was the only one that fit in our house. It was given to us by someone here at Red Tree who was moving. And uh, it just got beat up, and then we gave it to them. <laughs> and then here's our last one. This is the one that's in our kitchen right now. It's great. It's circular. It looks like this one, but it's way bigger. And that came from Don and Barb's house. They gave that to us as a gift. That was the table Kim kind of ate at in her family's house growing up. And it's all beat up. I love it. The finish is like half off of it. And it's all gouged and scratched and loved. And it's just perfect. I love round tables because you're all sitting around seeing each other. And then there's no picture of it, but here's this one. I inherited this table from my grandpa and grandma. Uh, it was in their kitchen for years and years and years in Ferguson in a little bitty house. I remember as a little kid spending the night at my grandparents' house and sitting at this table of my grandpa and grandma eating breakfast. And when uh, they, my grandpa died and when they moved out of that house and we were divvying stuff up, I was really little. And so they were kind of like, hey, this is going to be some of your inheritance. What do you want? And I didn't understand any of that stuff, you know. But I knew I wanted this table. And so I've had this table ever since then. It was in storage at my parents in the basement, and then it's moved with us. And it was a table we used in our kitchen at both our houses. And I just love it. It's a great table to sit and share and share a meal and chat and be real. A lot of tears and stories and board games have been shared at this little table. And so here's what I would like for you guys to do today. I'd like for you to share a meal at my table with me. And in just a few minutes, we're going to close out our time by taking communion together. And I want to invite you to come up and uh, grab a piece. If, if you understand communion, if, if, if celebrating the body broken and the blood poured out is the way you want to respond, I want to invite you to do it. We're going to do it our normal way. We're going to pray and do that stuff first. But I want to invite you to come and eat this from this table. And I know this is like a weird thing. 
But I want you to, I w- I want you to, to experience it with me. I want you to think about this table. Because it's really old. <laughs> it's been around forever. My grandpa had it made by Amish people. And I want you to think about the time that's shared over a table. That hospitality kind of time. Where it's not a meeting. And there's not an agenda. You're just human beings who need to eat food and talk about the life God's given you. Guys, it's one of the best places. It's one of the best places to experience gospel and safety. It just is. It's hard. It's hard to be Simon and stand in harsh, hard-hearted judgment over someone while you're sitting at their beat-up table eating pizza and talking about life. It's hard. When you get in someone's dining room and you see the stain or the removed finish from the nail polish remover from the sleepover eight years ago, it's hard to just rip that person. It's just a, it's a great environment to slow down and see the image of God in someone. And I want to encourage you, beloved, to think about that. Community is hard. It's hard. It's hard to proclaim the truth in love and give someone safety, even though it means they will hurt you with it. It's hard to give someone grace and navigate through the waters of relational capacity. It's hard to commit yourselves to deep relationship with flawed human beings who will sin against you and whose sin will come out in inappropriate expressions of hurt and love intermingled together. It is hard. But man, it's worth it. Man, it's worth it. Think of a young lady. Lost as lost could be, trapped in sin, living out her life in broken intimacy, selling her body, not knowing what love was. And she goes to a fancy dinner party. And she meets the lover of her soul. And meets her where she's at. Invites her into life. Beloved, can we do less? What is your table for? What is your home for? What is your hospitality for, if not for this? Lauren's going to come back up, and I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give some space for us to pray. We have several prayer counselors today, a lot. Dan and Jesse and Deanne and Michelle. (laughs) If you guys want to stand up so people can see you. We're going to have some prayer counselors around the room. I want to give some space for us to respond in prayer. I want you to actually think about this. I want you to think about your own home in your own hospitality. I want you to think about the hospitality you've experienced in the ways that people have opened up safety and invitation to you. I'm telling you guys, if it weren't for 3 a.m. conversations over junk food with friends in college, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't. So I want you to reflect on that. Reflect on the love of Christ you've experienced through that table time with other people. Ask him honestly to prick you, to point out your stiff-neckedness, your judgmentalism, the way you want to identify people by their sin and not the image of God stamped in them. If you need to respond by having someone else pray with you 
out loud, if you just need another human being to help put some words to this, please come grab one of these people. Come grab one, me or one of our elders. We'd love to pray with you. If you can sit by yourself and engage that, if you need to get out of your seat and get somewhere in this room where you can be on your knees with Jesus, do that. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give some space for us to engage. And then we're going to continue our time by singing a song. Jesus, you're so good. You're so good. Jesus, thank you that you saw me. You saw me with clearer eyes than I see myself. God, thank you. Thank you. Lord, I do not know what I would have done. I would, I'm hopeless without you. But you saw through my junk and you saw me. And you invited me to a table with you. To share the meal. To receive life. Thank you, Jesus, for inviting me to a dinner I couldn't afford. God, do this work in our hearts. God, where we are stiff-necked, where we are Simon, where we are closing our hearts and our tables away from people that need it, cut us to the quick. Give us eyes to see ourselves soberly and to see this lost and broken creation the way you see it. Jesus, we need you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.